Hello, and welcome to the Small Business Tax Savings Podcast, powered by Jetro and Associates. Get ready for another action-packed episode from our team that will help you save time, taxes, and keep more money in your pocket. Hi, listeners. Today's episode is with Paul Moore, and we're going to be talking about tax saving for real estate investors. Now, I just wanted to give a little pre-note ahead of the ahead of the episode this week. If you are not a real estate investor, this might be one uh, podcast episode you might want to sit out on. If you're interested in real estate investing, check out an episode that we did back in May called Passive Investing Using Real Estate, and that was with special guest Elaine Kawayoka. Check out that one first, and then come back to this one. This is sort of a secondary episode to that initial episode we did on on, real estate investing. This is going to dive a little bit deeper. For those of you that are real estate investors, it's going to dive deeper into the tax strategies uh, that are available to you. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome back, small business owners, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Small Business Tax Savings Podcast. My name is Mike Jezoshek. I am a CPA and founder at Jetro, which is a digital accounting firm servicing small business owners exclusively around the country. We assist them with accounting, bookkeeping, taxes, and payroll. Now, in today's podcast, we have a very special guest, Paul Moore. Paul, after graduating with an engineering degree and then an MBA from Ohio State, Paul entered the management development track at Ford Motor Company in Detroit. After five years, he departed to start a staffing company with a partner. They sold it to a publicly traded firm five years later for $2.9 million. Paul later entered the real estate sector, where he flipped over 50 homes and 25 high-end waterfront lots. He appeared on HGTV's House Hunters, rehabbed and managed rental properties, built a number of new homes, developed a subdivision, and started two successful online real estate marketing firms. Paul, extremely excited to have you on and, and sharing great information to our listeners today. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. So just to kind of get started, give the audience a little bit of idea about yourself and, and uh, you know what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to do our quick fire intro questions. These are just questions where we just knock them out pretty quick. The first question is, is why do you do what you do? So there's quite a few reasons, but um, one reason, you know, somebody asked me the other day, they said, you look like you could be retired by now. What, you're not planning to retire. Why? And I said, have you heard about human trafficking? And I shared with him that if you took the, the record annual profits of Apple, Nike, General Motors, and Starbucks, added those together, doubled that number, that would be the approximate revenues generated by human trafficking worldwide. And so I hate this stuff and I actually am trying to go on a mission to uh, make people know about it and also to raise a lot of money to fight human trafficking and rescue its victims. So that's certainly one of my big whys, Mike. Oh, that's incredible. And that's a, that's a pretty big why. Um, next question. What's one ritual that helps you become better at what you do? So it's, it's completely counter to my nature, but every morning I get up and I have for better part of 35 years now, uh, get up and spend some time really quiet, sitting, meditating, uh, you know, reading, journaling, doing things like that, that are kind of counter to my type A fast paced nature. And I think it really does help me out. Interesting. That's awesome. Um, what's one app or system that you use to stay in control of your workload? I use HubSpot, which is a free, there's a free version, then there's a very expensive version of a contact and sales management system. Awesome. So do you use the free version or the the paid version? 
We've actually never had a real reason to go up to the paid version. So I'm still using the free version. I've got, you know, thousands of contacts in there and it's working great. Oh, that's good to know. Um, what's one book, podcast, or blog that you would recommend and why? So I'm, uh, I've always had a problem with time management and I've discovered from Gary Keller and Jay Papazon the one thing, which is a book. It's also a podcast and it's also a system that they're rolling out. It's a community of users and they do training and accountability and I've really benefited a lot from that in the last year. Interesting. I'll have to check that one out. And, and finally, kind of what's one topic or what's the topic that you're going to be focusing on today during the presentation and the podcast episode? I'm going to be talking about tax savings for passive real estate investors. Okay. Active and passive, actually. Excellent. Well, let's not keep everyone waiting too long. We're going to go ahead and get started. Paul's going to have, um, be sharing some information with us. For those of you that are listening to our podcast, we also have a version on YouTube that we can share, see some of the screens that he's going to be sharing. We're going to be talking through it as well. So, Paul, the floor is yours. Okay, Mike. Well, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who was a real estate investor from California, and he said, if the American people knew how little taxes are paid by uh, active and passive real estate investors. We'd have another tax revolt on our hands. And this time, it would be against us. And he went on to share with me how he could take $20 million of uh, a large investor's money. He could invest that with no uh, dividends paid out for 10 years. And then in years 11 through 20, pay a hefty $131 million in dividends out to the investor and create a portfolio that was worth $210 million over 20 years. Now, this is all from a $20 million investment. Now, that's amazing. But what's more amazing, Mike, I think to me was that he said you could technically do that without paying any taxes along the way. Sounds like a scam, but he proved it and he went through all the tax law and he spent a long time on it. So anyway, it's, it's pretty impressive and you can see why there might be another tax revolt if the American people knew that. Um, you know, like love him or hate him, we've got a uh, tax, excuse me, we've got a commercial real estate investor in the Oval Office and uh, the laws that were passed in the 2017 tax reform bill are quite favorable for real estate investors of all types. Now, I'm not a tax professional and I don't pay, play one on TV, but Mike, you are. So I'm glad you're on here with me. You can jump in if you hear anything that doesn't sound right. Yeah. Um, like you said, you already read my bio. Um, I do, in addition to what you said, I have a podcast called How to Lose Money, which is a wealth building podcast where we interview successful uh, entrepreneurs, investors, and executives about their failures and heartaches and losses on the way to the top. So we're going to talk about top 10 tax strategies for commercial real estate investors. And this also applies mostly to residential investors as well. So number one, hire Mike. <laughs> if you don't have a tax strategist, you need one. Uh, another investor in California named Ed talked to me one time and he said, you know, I, uh, I was paying $120,000 a year in taxes as a real estate investor. And I took some ideas I had just read about to my CPA and said, what about this and this and that? And he said, the CPA said, yeah, yeah, you can do that. You should do that. And he said, well, you knew about this and you didn't tell me all these years? 
And this guy said, well, I'm, you pay me to fill out your tax returns, not be a tax strategist. So Ed fired the guy and he hired someone like you, Mike, who actually cared enough to get involved and to dig in and figure out all the tax saving strategies for small business owners. And since then, he said that he has actually paid zero in taxes uh, over about the last decade. That's down from 120,000 a year. So it's quite a big change. Uh, accountant, you know, accountants are great, but tax strategists who are also accountants are better. Now, should you, does this mean you have to fire your current CPA or accountant? No, it doesn't mean that. They, because they can work together. Agreed, Mike? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. So that's how I do it. I actually have a strategist who helps me with like strategic ideas when we're setting up a new company or setting up a new fund. But I actually have a local CPA who I use on a regular basis. So who should you contact? Well, I guess you know who I'm going to say. I'm going to tell them to contact you, Mike. Uh, Tax strategy number two, invest directly. Now, what this means is if, if you're investing in a company that's investing in real estate, then you're probably getting a 1099, but you might not be getting all the tax savings that you would get through a direct investment in real estate. How do you know if you're invested directly? Well, you should be getting a K-1 rather than a 1099. And this means you're, in theory, getting the pass-through deductions from uh, depreciation and any other benefits that real estate investors should get. Tax strategy number three is a big one. It's accelerated depreciation through cost segregation. So if you have a commercial property of, let's say, a half million dollar multifamily property, and you are uh, depreciating that over 27 and a half years straight line, that means you're taking the price of the land, excuse me, the value of the land, typically 20 or 25% out of the equation, and you're depreciating the rest over 27 and a half years equally. But if you get a cost segregation study, you can actually uh, accelerate the personal property and pull it out or segregate it out from the real property. Real property are like, you know, foundations, walls, things like that, the structure where personal property can be things like cabinets, countertops, carpet, uh, even the roof, uh, or at least the, the, the roofing materials, the uh, uh, landscaping, the shrubbery, the parking lot asphalt, the sidewalks, the electrical, uh, the plumbing, uh, you know, um, a, a lot of the light fixtures, et cetera, windows, they can be depreciated much more quickly. And this means accelerated depreciation and potential, potential at least, of losses on the K-1 in the early years. If you get a, if you have a smaller property or if it's fairly basic, you can get a basic study for as little as a few thousand dollars. I've even heard less. And then uh, if you have a more complicated or larger property, you might want to consider getting an engineered study, which is quite a bit more expensive. Um, Mike, I don't know what your experience is, but I've had uh, operators who have saved 20. They've been able to actually segregate out 20 to 30 to even 35% of the property and put it on a shorter time horizon for depreciation, which saved them quite a bit of money in the early years cost of this, and again, anywhere from a few thousand up to over $12,000. And I'm sure that there are larger 
properties that would even cost more. Who qualifies? Well, uh, almost anybody with a rental property, a commercial building of any type. I've heard some cost segregation folks say that if you have a even a rental home of $100,000 or more, you should consider a cost segregation study. Interesting. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I think, by the way, that that is the uh, tax strategy that pushed Ed over the limit when he found out he could have been doing this for years and he hadn't been. The good thing is, Mike, am I right? You can actually do some of these in arrears, right? Yep. Yep. So tax strategy number four, correctly classify deductible expenses. In 1992, I started my first business and I was at a small business administration seminar and they gave us the great news that if we had printers and um, something new called a mobile phone uh, or things like that, we could actually, uh, actually they called it a bag phone or a car phone. Car phone, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we could actually deduct the entire price of that in that year up to $15,000. But now the limits are much, much higher. And uh, I don't want to get into the weeds on this, but it's important that you really think through what are deductible repairs versus capitalized improvements. Section 179 of the IRS code uh, allows us to deduct uh, quite a bit more than $15,000 now. What's the limit now, Mike? Um, so the section 179? Yeah, I believe the limit's a million dollars now, isn't it? Yeah, it's after, the tax, after the 2017 tax cuts. Right, after the, two, after the tax reform bill. So mm -hmm. uh, pretty powerful. Um, uh, for example, roofs now, if you had a multifamily property, I believe that um, if you had a million dollars in roof replacements, you should be able to deduct those all in the current year rather than spreading that out over 15, 27 and a half, or even 39 years. So pretty powerful strategy. Next is return of principal. Now, if you get a, a, a return, if you get returns on your um, investment that are classified as income, obviously there's a potential that you'll be paying income tax on that. But if you get your principal returned, um, that is obviously not a taxable event. So there'd be, you would think that there'd be zero taxes on that. Um, an example of this is uh, in our funds, we have a 9% preferred return. Above, that means the investors get 9% of, of the, uh, they get a 9% return on their investment before there's any sharing of their money with us as the syndicator or operator. Above the 9%, let's say there's an 11% return in a given year, anything above the 9% is according to our PPM, which is our operating agreement, which is our private place placement memorandum for our fund. Anything above the 9% is considered a return of principal. Therefore, it's not taxable. So this is an opportunity for people to save on taxes from passive real estate investing. Next strategy is refinance tax-free and reinvest. This is really similar to the last one. Now, if you refinance your home, obviously you don't have to pay taxes on that refinance, unless maybe you're in California and they changed the law yesterday, but it's <laughs> not completely out of the question. But um, refinancing your home, just like refinancing a commercial property, should not be a taxable event. So if I can hand back my investors uh, their money because I refinanced, um, I might be 
in a situation that the investors should be in a situation where they don't, they can take that money back, they can reinvest it somewhere else, they can start a new stream of income, but they didn't have any tax on that, which is really cool. Uh, in fact, we do that in our Wellings Income Fund 1. Uh, we actually plan, our target at least, is to refinance and give money back to investors in years four, five, and six. So about halfway through the 10-year window, they're getting their original money back if it goes as planned, and they're able to reinvest that and put that money to work, but it's not taxed, which is pretty cool. That's great. So it's basically creating two income streams from one investment, and it also leads to a situation called infinite return, which basically means that if you don't have any money left in the deal anymore, your ROI, your return divided by your investment, is dividing by zero. So it's effectively an in infinite return on that first investment, which is a great place to be. Tax strategy number seven is a tax deferred exchange. Now you all know about 1031 exchanges. Uh, until recently they worked for cars and trucks and boats and art and even patents, but now they just work for real estate. Uh, the way it works is uh, if you are going to sell a certain type of real estate and I uh, just got a call today from somebody who wanted to sell their restaurant franchise. I think it was an Arby's or a Hardee's franchise. Well, they're going to make like two and a half million dollars from that. They were trying to figure out how they could avoid capital gains on that. And the answer is by doing a 1031 exchange and exchanging their property effectively through an intermediary for another property. Now, there's all kinds of restrictions and there's all kinds of things you have to do. There's timeframes that have to be strictly met, but it is possible and investors save millions and millions of dollars every year by doing 1031 tax deferred exchanges. I recently had a, um, I recently had a, an investor who wanted to convert a 1031 exchange series to a non-tax personal property. Now, again, I'm not a tax advisor and I did not advise him on this at all. Uh, he did this deal completely separate from me. But he went through a 1031 exchange intermediary who told him that he was able to, he was, what he did is he sold like 10 rental homes. He took the proceeds and he bought a vacation property at a lake. And he paid like half a million dollars for this vacation property. And when he did that, he actually put it on a rental program. Now, when he put it on the rental program, um, he began to rent it. And after a couple of years, he said he's going to choose to change that from a rental property into a home he moves into as his primary residence. And he was told that he was able to do that and he would never have to pay the capital gains that had accrued over the uh, purchases and sales he had made over the years. Pretty amazing. Again, I'm not a tax professional, but that's what I've been told at least two or three different times that that was possible. Another type of exchange is a stock swap or a 721 exchange. We won't get into that today, uh, except to say that a lot of people who want to sell their company to a larger company can do that and avoid capital gains. Tax strategy number eight is to avoid passive loss limitations as a qualified real estate professional. 
I was talking to a guy the other day who said, my spouse, my wife, uh, spends like 20 hours a week doing all these rental properties, managing all these rental homes. And it's a big pain. But I said, hey, wait a minute. You know, she probably qualifies as a qualified real estate professional. Does she do anything else? He said, no. I said, well, you can deduct potentially much higher passive uh, losses, from uh, income tax losses, I should say, from being a qualified real estate professional. So we found out, or I told him that uh, he had to have seven, she had to have 750 hours uh, a year or more, and she had to spend at least 50% of her working hours doing this, which she did. And there are other, like three other qualifications, but if you get the qualification as a QREP, there's a chance that you can write off more uh, instead of carrying forward some of your losses. Tax strategy number nine of 10, maximize self-directed IRA and 401k investments. Now, everybody knows about 401ks and pension plans and IRAs, but only about 3% of IRA holders or 401k holders know that you can self-direct your investments. And so we highly recommend that people consider rolling over into a self-directed IRA, either a Roth or a SEP, or a self-directed 401k. It's a very powerful way to be able to direct your life outside of the stock, bond, and mutual fund world. We recommend a lot of people who do real estate do this. But the question is, who should avoid this? I think there's actually a group of people who basically are, let's call them shiny object chasers, which I used to be years ago. And that's people who, you know, the next big thing that comes along, they want to invest all they can in this. And uh, people who are prone to taking big risks and plowing a lot of money into one place like an oil well or the next big internet stock should probably be accountable to their spouse, be accountable to their friends and others, or if they're not willing to do that, they should maybe consider avoiding the self-directed aspect of this. Um, I'll just leave it at that because I've run into some people who should have followed my advice, but um, <laughs> what yeah. are limitations on this? Um, I don't have the actual limitations, but I do believe the self-directed IRAs have a fairly low limit to what can be contributed every year self-directed 401ks, if you have the income for it from a uh, self-employment, you can actually contribute quite a bit more and have quite a bit more flexibility. Um, you can check into Roth versus SEP IRAs on your own if you're listening. Uh, tax strategy number 10 is resetting the basis at the end of the line. You know, it's said that everybody, every one of us has to die and pay taxes. Some people hate paying taxes more than death, but it's actually possible to uh, reset your basis in your investments at death. And what can happen is some people get close to their deathbed and they want to sell off all their assets, pay all their capital gains just to leave an equal, a fair share of cash to each, each one of their heirs. But um, it's possible that it might be better for you to leave the assets in place when you pass away and allow your heirs to sell those because a good portion of them, if not all of the basis can be reset after your death, which means if you've got 
uh, you know, 19 million, uh, let's, excuse, let's say $20 million in assets and $1 million basis. That means you might have to pay capital gains on up to 19 million of that 20 million because you've had it for a long time or rolled it over through exchanges. Well, if you leave that to your heirs, uh, let's say let's say it was 10 million instead of 20 million to make it simpler. Um, you leave that to your heirs and it, it is likely, from what I understand, that the basis will be reset to $10 million rather than them paying capital gains on 9 million. And then if they sell it the next day or the next month for 10 million, they will actually have no capital gains tax from what I understand. And those limits were increased. I believe those were, those were doubled with the Tax Reform Act that passed in December of 2017. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, one of the big things there too is that um, so many people, they'll, they'll go in and um, find a strategy or learn about a strategy and implement it before, before asking a professional. And so a lot of times we've seen cases like that where they say, well, you know, we're trying to diversify, you know, give some of the, the uh, income that my you know, father, whoever it is that might be getting older, they might be trying to diversify that across child and it's it, between the siblings. And it's things like that, that uh, many people don't reach out beforehand. Instead, they yeah. just take the action, then try to find a plan afterwards. And it's the same thing with selling a business. Someone will come to me after they sold a business and say, okay, where are the tax savings? And there's still tax savings and strategies available. But if they would have came before the selling of the business, there's a lot more that they can do to it. So I always recommend in cases like this, that people do the research ahead of time. And then once they have that research, talk to the professional and find out, you know, you know, reassure the research that you've done at that point. Absolutely. So the Tax Reform Act of 2017 had quite a few benefits to real estate investors. Uh, number one is the 20% pass-through deduction. Now, I thought this was for all passive real estate investors, but now I've come to find out that it's apparently for people who are active, actively investing in real estate, although there's some debate about that. Um, uh, an example of this is if you had $100,000 in income and you were actively involved in this LLC or this entity, then you would only have to pay taxes on $80,000 rather than $100,000, which is a pretty good deal. Tax reform bonus number two is bonus depreciation. We already talked about this. Section 179 has been expanded. And uh, for at least the next, I think it's five or six or seven years. Seven years, I believe. Yeah, there's the, um, the, uh, you are able to, instead of spreading out depreciation over, let's say, 15 years, five, seven, 15 years, uh, it can all be depreciated in the current year, which is really spurring on a lot of investment. I mentioned the example earlier of 15, uh, excuse me, a million dollars in roofs. So pretty cool. Uh, I mentioned 1031 exchanges before. Like I said, it used to be for all kinds of people, but now it's been preserved for real estate investors only. So 1031 exchanges are back to their original intent uh, for real property only. Now, you can avoid capital gains without doing a 1031 exchange. A lot of people wish they could, and there are ways to do that. There are several strategies to do this. And uh, one I'm going to mention that didn't make the list was investing, excuse me, selling or excuse me, donating your property to a charitable remainder trust 
before selling it. Now, this is something I did 22 years ago. I sold a company and I donated three quarters of the stock, I believe it was, to a charitable remainder trust, which allowed that to be passed on to the uh, purchaser with no capital gains tax. That's one way to avoid capital gains. A second way is to invest in an opportunity zone. Now, these are zones designated by the federal and state governments uh, that uh, are asking where they're asking for higher investment to try to gentrify or improve an area that's been lagging behind. And there are all kinds of limitations, all kinds of time limits involved. But the folks that have done this have said it's been a huge benefit to their tax saving efforts. So something you might want to check out. You might want to check it out in 2019 if you're hearing this podcast live because the benefits for this are going to uh, dramatically erode in the coming years. Uh, 1031 avoidance strategy number two is to do a 721 tax deferred exchange. And this is basically, let's take an example. Um, Mike, assume that you had built up a $100 million uh, company over say the last 20 years and you were selling it to Mr. Buffett. Now Warren Buffett could buy this from you and you could have a huge capital gains tax or you could actually do a 721 tax deferred exchange swap which would allow you to donate the shares of your company, not donate, you could swap the shares for Berkshire Hathaway shares. And when you do that for Berkshire Hathaway stock, you could potentially uh, have no capital gains tax. Uh, we use this. We actually are uh, Wellings Capital at the end of our 10-year fund. If our operators want to hold on and continue to operate the assets that we have invested in, we are, are going to make it our goal to do a 721 exchange and allow our investors to hang on and swap their shares in fund A for fund B to allow them to hold on with no capital gains tax. And it will theoretically reset the capital gain, excuse me, the depreciation schedule to day one, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. uh, 1031 avoidance strategy number three is an installment sale. An installment sale basically was codified in a one sentence in the uh, 1913 tax code. And it's basically saying that if you sell a property or, or a business um, over time, rather than get a single payment at closing, this is potentially an installment sale. And uh, there are all kinds of limitations with this and there are all kind of, kinds of hoops you need to jump through, but it is doable. And you can use an intermediary to do a sale like this and uh, you can expect that you can get approximately 93 to 95% of the total proceeds. So if you sell something for a million dollars, you can expect to get 930 to 950,000 of the million at closing. And then you can delay your capital gains for 30 years. And you can potentially take out an insurance policy or make an investment that will easily pay that capital gains in 30 years. Um, there are limitations, like I said, there are minimums you want to hit before you even try to go through the hoops of doing that. But if you want more information about that, you should check into an installment sale. So that is it, Mike. What yeah. questions do you have? 
No, I think that's all great information. And, you know, the things that you're talking about in this, uh, you know, that you've been talking about are really illustrate what we talk about when we're talking about tax strategies and tax tips is that this, the thought of tax strategies and saving on taxes is digging into the tax code more. This is all stuff that is completely legal. This is green light stuff, but the IRS doesn't advertise it and because they don't advertise it for many different reasons. And it's really kind of looking into that tax code and sifting out and finding those tax strategies that are readily available to all investors out there um, and actually utilizing them. So I think that this is, you know, incredibly good stuff. Um, for those listeners that might be saying, I don't even have real estate, like I'm kind of, it's way over my head. Um, we did a podcast episode a couple weeks ago. So listen to that one. It kind of gives an introduction to, to passive real estate investing. And I wanted to bring Paul on to really kind of dive deep into some of those tax strategies and, and the tax planning around that real estate. Um, more so than just what is real estate investing. This is made for those people that are already active investors and, and have a lot more activity going on. So I think that's that's incredibly good. And now, Paul, when we originally brought you on and introduced you, we didn't really talk about what you're doing at your current company and what your focus is now. So give the audience a little bit of idea of what you're doing now, um, you know, kind of where your focus is, you know, on these days outside of, you know, the, the day-to-day activity. So I've been investing in real estate since the year 2000, so about 19 years. And I found over the years that there was a great need for people to be more diversified. And one way to diversify is by raising up a fund. And so we've raised up two different funds at Wellings Capital. We have a growth fund, which is targeting a 19% total annual return with no Uh, cash payouts along the way. This is basically just an accumulation fund. Uh, We're trying to accumulate uh, all the uh, principal growth that we can and appreciation. And um, we are investing in self-storage and multifamily in that fund. In our second fund, which is the Wellings Income Fund, this is an opportunity to invest in self-storage, multifamily, but also in mobile home parks, which have been incredibly stable through all kinds of ups and downs in the economy. In this fund, we're targeting about an 8% average annual uh, total average return from distributions from operations and another 7 or 8% from appreciation annually, which will give us an, a total return uh, or targeting a total return, I should say, of about 15% or more. And uh, people can learn more about that at our website, wellingscapital.com. So how many investors do you have in each fund currently? So we just opened these two funds in January, about five months ago. Oh, wow. And uh, so we have uh, probably 40 or 50 investors in each fund at this time. Okay. And are there minimums uh, to get into a type of fund? And this is just more so finding out for those people that, you know, maybe are trying to start get started into it? Is it normally someone that's experienced that is investing in a fund like yourselves? Or is this for kind of people that are just wanting to get their feet wet in that type of industry and see if that's something they want to focus more on? There's a broad mix of, you know, people who have no experience and then some who have some experience. Uh, but uh, it's not, experience is not required. However, there is an accreditation uh, that must be met. We uh, can only work with accredited investors per the SEC regulations that we fall under. And accredited investors are folks who, in general, uh, make over $200,000 a year individually or $300,000 with a spouse. 
or it's not and it's or they have a million dollars or more in net worth, not including their private residence. Okay, got it. Um, and so, you know, one thing that you also mentioned uh, at the beginning was kind of your focus on this human trafficking um, problem in the U.S. Is there a certain charity that you're working with? Do you have your own charity, you know, that people are interested in? And the reason I ask is that uh, we talk a lot about on this podcast and my business about ways that as small business owners, we're, we're oftentimes more fortunate than others out there and, and looking for ways to give back. And it's really great to see that you have that why and what you're, what you're still going for and what you're focused on and helping and reduce. So do you have a specific charity that you're working with or foundation or anything that you have built up? Yeah, we have our own nonprofit organization, but I actually, you know, we pass a hundred percent of our donations through to the charities that, uh, we're basically a pass through. We we pass it through to charities we work with. We just recommend that people donate directly to these charities. You can get more information on those. Uh, one would be harvesthome.org, which is a wonderful ranch uh, near Kansas City that uh, allows victims of trafficking to come and recover and be restored and have a new life and a new start. And so we really like harvesthome.org. My friends, Rhonda and Danny Calhoun run that. A second organization that we really like put out a movie called Nefarious. And the movie Nefarious can be, it's a documentary. Uh, Don't eat popcorn while you're watching it. It's pretty horrifying, but it will really open my eyes to human trafficking. You can get that uh, documentary. You can rent it for a few dollars online. You can buy it. Uh, or you can get it from the organization that put it out. It's called exoduscry.com, and that's E-X-O-D-U-S-C-R-Y, exoduscry.com, exoduscry, Benjamin Nolo, took 800 hours of uh, footage around the world when he investigated trafficking a number of years ago, and he's putting that out in a variety of movies, including Nefarious. Oh, thank you. And one thing we'll do is uh, for everyone listening here, I'll, I'll share information for Paul's website, more information on some of the, the links that he sent here. I'll share those in the show notes. So if you do want to check any of that stuff out, it's easily accessible directly in the podcast area. So other than that, you know, Paul, I just want to thank you for coming on. This is uh, really good information. I know we said to in this initial interview to keep the things, you know, on a more higher level. And then what we can always do is dig dive, dive deeper into it based on our audience's needs and kind of what they're looking for. Go into some of these strategies that might be a little bit more complex or might be a little bit more specific and dive deeper into those to, um, you know, provide more value there. So I want to pre- I appreciate mm-hmm. you for coming on. Um, is there any Thanks, other Mark. things you want to give out or, or share your information on? Uh, I don't think so. I think we hit it pretty well. My one advice to everybody, which I always like to give out, is please understand the difference between investing and speculating. You know, Mike, investing is when your principal is generally safe and you have a chance to make a return. And speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you have a chance to make a return. I didn't know the difference between investing and speculating for, you know, for sure during my 30s. And I made a lot of mistakes that I'm still, you know, regretting today. But I really recommend that people really take a hard look at being a, an investor. Uh, Warren Buffett, who's one of my investing heroes, and I'm sure a lot of people's investing hero, and he's really big on this. And this is one thing I just want to put a bug in everybody's ear to consider that while 
you are young. And especially if you're passively investing in real estate or other things outside of your core business. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Paul, and we will talk soon. Okay. Thanks, Mike. It's been an honor and a pleasure. This has been another episode of the Small Business Tax Savings Podcast from the team at Jetro and Associates. If you have any questions, feel free to email them, tax at jetrotax.com. We have packages for small business owners starting at just $75 a month. If you enjoyed our podcast, please take the time out to give us a five-star review in iTunes or wherever you listen. This helps us to bring you useful tips to help you grow your small business. Thanks for listening and have a great day.